You may be seated. Some interesting uh, statistics I thought I'd share with you. I sometimes look on these things and think about the world we live in. George Barna, one of the most well-known researchers in the world today, Christian or non-Christian, but definitely Christian, says uh, compared to 63% of all adults, 86% of born-again Christians believe the Bible is totally accurate in all of its teachings. It's according to a survey, a massive survey he conducted in 2005. So 63% of the just general population believes the Word of God is totally accurate and true. And born again, believers come in at a whopping 86%. You do realize that that's kind of frightening. That 14% of people who say the Spirit of God lives in them would say the Word of God may not be true. We wonder what our foundation might be then in our beliefs. He went on in, this same, in, a, in, a same, in the same survey. Half of born-again Christians, 46%, agree that Satan is, is not a living being but is a symbol of evil. Half of Christians, half of people, this, this survey is very specific. This includes those who believe that the Spirit of God dwells in them, that they are born again, they are regenerated. And half of them don't even believe Satan exists. That when the Bible speaks of Satan or anything like that, it's just talking about evil. So that calls into question... The first statistic, which said 86% of people believe the Word of God is totally true and accurate to what they mean by totally true and accurate. About one-third of born-again Christians, 33%, believe that if a person is good enough, they can earn a place in heaven. Interesting. 28%, I might ask those 33%, why are you born again? then 28% of born again born agains agree that while he while he lived on earth Jesus committed sins like other people 28% the same survey found 42% of all adults believe that Jesus committed sin there's not that big a gap between those who claim Christ as their regeneration as their salvation to just general populace out there we might see the problem with our churches and why they look so much like the world. Born-again Christians are more likely than non-born-again individuals to accept moral absolutes. Specifically, moral absolutes. Now, remember the first statement said 86% believe it's totally true, which speaks to a moral absolute. 32% of born-again said they believe in moral absolutes. 32% believe there is a truth and it is out there and it must be found and it is true, objectively. Only, only 32%. Compared to just half as many, 15%, among non-born-agains. So, this is the world we live in. I'm, I think about that and I think about my children and I think, where are we headed? Then I spend time in devotion and 
in reflection over the scripture and in singing hymns. I hope none of you ever come to the office unannounced. You'll probably, you may catch me singing and that might not be to your pleasure and it might be to my embarrassment. But this week in my devotional time here, uh, I, I was just singing and had the Trinity hymnal out and I was flipping through singing songs from memory and then flipping through the ones I couldn't remember. And a song came to my mind that my grand, my great-grandmother sang as she worked in her garden. Listen to this hymn written by Horatius Bonner. He, he wrote it uh, during his lifetime in the 1800s. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Come unto me and rest. Lay down thy weary one. Lay down thy head upon my breast. And then he said, I came. To Jesus, as I was weary and worn and sad, I found in him a resting place, and he has made me glad. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely give the living water, thirsty one, stoop down and drink and live. And Bonner's response I came to Jesus, and I drank of the living, life giving stream. My thirst was quenched, my soul revived, and now. I live in Him. Then he wrote his final verse. I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am this dark world's light. Look unto me, thy morn shall rise, and all thy day be bright. I looked to Jesus, and I found to Him my star, my sun. And in that light of life, I'll walk till traveling days are done. Bonner was a pastor in the Free Church of Scotland known for his preaching, world known for his preaching and his theology. He was a Presbyterian. Um, the Scottish church reformed during his day, and he went with the free church, not the state church. And he began to preach and write hymns. You know, I think about the state of music in our day, and this is not a slight to any of our modern hymn writers or songwriters, but just to say very few lasting songs are being produced in our day. And it's an indictment against pastors, not against the music industry. Songs survive hundreds of years and even thousands of years because pastors wrote songs from the Scripture. That's why they survived. Very few songwriters today start with the Bible and write a song. They, thought, they start with a thought, an idea, and they write a song and then force it on the Scripture. They find some verse to make it match, to try to prop up their song. And that's our theology. That, they learn that from their pastors who don't preach from the Word of God, who don't exposit them the truth. They just tell a story and tell a verse that goes with the story. We're doing it to ourselves. Bonner is the opposite of this. He wrote 600 hymns during his career. 600 hymns. A hundred of them are still in, in most major publications. Hymn publications. A hundred out of 600. This one I just read to you was his take on three statements Christ made in the book of John. As he studied the book of John, as he prepared to preach the book of John, he wrote a hymn. If I write a hymn one day... Maybe we'll sing it. <laughs> a professor of mine told me, and I'm convicted by this. He said, son, we were talking in his office down in New Orleans. He said, son, I know I'm ready to preach a text, 
when I can write a song about the text. I know I'm really ready when I write a song. And, and so where will our songs for the next generation come from? I hope, I pray they come from men preparing messages to deliver to the God's people God's word and songs come from their preparation as they did in the past and they hopefully then they will survive. John 3, 7 through 8, the breath of God. The breath of God. Last week we looked at, we've been looking at regeneration and this statement of Jesus to Nicodemus that's so life-transforming to Nicodemus that he scratches his head literally. How can a man be born again? When he is old, can he go back into his mother's womb and be born a second time? And Jesus, as we emphasized last week, said, unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I propose to you, and I believe it's supported in verse 6, that water has nothing to do with physical birth. Why? Because look at the next verse. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Clearly, he is defining two categories that don't deal with our earthly mortal body. Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. What is he speaking of? Galatians 5, starting in verse 19, Paul says, the works of the flesh are this, and he lists them for us. And they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus says it shorthand. The flesh is flesh. It's not the kingdom. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And what do we, where do we find this spirit? Galatians 5, starting in verse 21. The fruit of the Spirit is, in contrast to the flesh. So, Far from being an exposition by Jesus on the fact that a man has to be born physically A and then born spiritually B, which would be redundant and an overstatement and a missing, uh, like, like we're in this deep theological discussion, then Jesus pulls us to the obvious. Why? Well, he didn't. You had to be born of the water and the flesh. And I said last week, and I believe it even more after studying this week, even further on this subject, the water is the word of God. Peter says that the, the seed of God was fertilized by the Word. That's what he says. Ephesians 5, Paul says that Christ is making Himself a beautiful bride, which is the church. And how is He doing it? Through the washing of the water of the Word. So He can present her to Himself spotless and blameless. And so we have this statement of Christ that you've got to be born of the Word of God and of the Spirit of God. And they work in tandem. They work together. One is the, as, as uh, I said last week, one writer said, one thought is that the faith, our faith is like the egg. The Word of God is like the, the life-giving seed that goes in and fertilizes that egg. And the Spirit is what hovers over. We're going to see that today hovers over and brings life to that whole process. The Spirit of God brings life to that process. What I want us to see today is that there is a breath of God. The creative act of God is always accompanied by the breath of God. It's always accompanied by the breath of God. The Hebrew word ruach is uh, the word for wind, breath, or spirit. Every time you see wind, breath, or spirit in the Old Testament, it is a form of this word. 
this Hebrew, one Hebrew word. And the way they make the decision about which it, whether it, the writer is speaking of the wind or the breath or the spirit is by context of what the writer is speaking about. And so Genesis 1 uh, is going to speak about the uh, Ruach of God. The Greek word for spirit or breath is pneuma. We get pneumonia from this word. It's hard for us to say that P-N. Uh, our, our daughter, Hannah Grace, is uh, learning to read and she uh, is learning about these silent. And we struggle with these silence, you know, uh, for, you know, pneumonia and things like that, you know, instead of saying pneumonia. Pneuma means spirit. It means, also can mean wind, okay? And then the Latin word, which we use in, in our language often, is spiritus. Expire, inspire, aspire. All those words come from this one word. Spiritus. Or our word spirit comes from this word. Expire. I chose that one because without the spirit, a man expires. Without the spirit, a man expires. He doesn't exist. At his death, he just goes off into... Eternal death. God's breath moved over the face of the deep. We see that in Genesis 1, 1 through 2. Uh, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It should be there for you uh, so that you don't have to flip back to Genesis. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, I've gone through here and italicized some things. That I added those. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This word, Spirit of God. Spirit is that word, Ruach. And He was hovering over the face of the deep. What is known as the primordial. The, the thing that is before there was creation. The darkness, face of the deep. It's interesting. This word hover, hovering, translated here for the, in the ESV. Um, you might have moved in your translation. What you would be better to have is that he vibrated. He vibrated. He teemed with life over the darkness. There was nothing, and the Spirit of God was energetically just like like a like a, a, a vibration over this nothingness this restrained powerful creative force was sitting on go ready to create ready to create something out of nothing and so he says it hovered the writer does and it's interesting to me i'm not an engineer nor a scientist we have some engineers and scientists in the crowd So I'll be careful here. Stay in my realm and not theirs. I will venture to their realm to say this. My understanding, everything but nuclear energy exists off of uh, basically vibration waves. Is that right, Aaron? Sound waves, light waves. um, Everything is a wave. Everything does this. I believe that is the case because... The Spirit of God hovered. His energy still gives life to this mortal world. Without His energy, 
There would be no waves. There'd be no energy. There'd be no life without Him. And so His creativeness, His creative force, His very energy is, is there hovering. The Ruach, the Spirit of God. Some translations call it, and the wind of God. A, be, a better way to say Spirit of God might be to say the breath of God was over this face of the deep. And so we have God's breath moving over um, the darkness. God's breath was breathed in the man. Look at uh, Genesis 2, 7. He breathed all things into existence. He spoke, and you see this, and, and let there be. And let there be. He just speaks, and all these things happen. That's His breath, His creative force going forward. God's breath is breathed into the nostrils of man. God, for the first time, makes something with His hands. The Lord stoops down and forms man out of dust. And then there is this mortal without life. This, uh, this container waiting for mortality. Let's put it that way. And so He breathed, look at that, into His nostrils the breath of life. He gave him a living spirit. He gave him a living breath. He breathed it into him. All other things are just created. God doesn't touch them personally. God doesn't breathe in them personally. Now their life comes from Him. But this intimate portrayal of the creation of Adam is like nothing else in the story for us. God is breathing out of His nostrils the breath of life into the nostrils of Adam. And so God in His creation always brings His breath. It moved over the face of the deep. He spoke everything into existence. He breathed life into human man, in, into Adam. God breathed, God's breath moved over the valley of dry bones like we said last week. Exodus 37, 1-10. Again, I've made some highlights. The text uh, will be there on the screen. Look, read with me. Follow this thought that God is breathing Life, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and He brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord. You see that? The Ruach, the Spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and He led me around among them and believed. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. They were dead. They had no bone marrow. They had been there a long time. And He said to me, Son of man... Can these bones live? And I answered, O oh Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O oh dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath, the same word, to enter you and you shall live. Life comes from breath. And I will lay sinews upon you and I will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling. You see that? A sound. I'll, I'll go so far as to say that sound is like the wind, the rustling of wind through the leaves of a tree. 
Ezekiel heard the wind of God, the breath of God coming into the valley like he had never heard it before. And then these bones stand up in our text and they have sinews and they get muscles and skin and there again we have created beings standing there waiting for life. Just like Adam, these things are waiting on life. And what happens? He says, prophesy to the breath. Speak to the living breath. And say to it, O breath, come from the four winds and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as He commanded me and the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. In the creation of God, there's always breath. There's the breath over the face of the deep, which hovered and energized everything. There's the breath that He spoke everything to existence with. There's the breath that He breathed into the nostrils of this clay pot waiting on life. And then in Ezekiel we see again these clay pots waiting on life and God breathes in them. And here, Ezekiel says, I heard a sound and the rattling of bones. The sound, I believe, is the wind of God moving across these bones. God's breath expired the Scriptures. This sounds anticlimactic, but it shouldn't be. All Scripture is breathed out by God. You see that? All Scripture is not inspired by God. Inspiration is a misunderstood term in our day. We all talk about being inspired. You were inspired to get up this morning. You were inspired to put on your clothes you're wearing. You were inspired to sing the song. The songwriter was inspired even by God to write the song he wrote. That's not what God's saying here. What God is saying here is my very breath left my, my being into these humans and they wrote the Word of God. How do we know that? Because Peter says, holy men were moved along in the Spirit, and they wrote the Word of God. They were moved by what? By the breath of God, by the creative, energizing force. Peter didn't just wake up in the middle of the night from some charismatic dream and think, I'll write something cool that was was inspired while I was dreaming. No, he sat in his sane mind and had the same God who breathed in Adam, who breathed out the spoken Word to create the physical universe who breathed and hovered and energized all of creation, who breathed over the dead, dry bones in the valley, Peter had that same breath come over him and it energized him to write exactly the words of God, word for word, on the manuscript. That's what we see. The creative nature of God is in creation and it's always seen as breath. He's breathing these things out from His very existence. He's putting them forward. God's breath moves over the unbeliever to regenerate his soul and cause him to believe. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind, the, if it was in the Hebrew, it would say ruach, it says pneuma, blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. 
So we have this same creative force that we've been speaking of as regeneration power, the same force that brought the earth and the universe into being, spun planets and billions of stars into existence, spun your eternal life into existence in you without you knowing what was going on. The rattling of the bones began and the Word of God came on you through the power of the Holy Spirit of God, the wind of God, the call it whatever you will, wind, breath, spirit, it's all the same And it moved on your dead, dry bones and you had life and you live now because His breath has moved over you. This is the same truth that Nicodemus struggled with. Before you give up your wrestling match with this text and before you get moved away from the truths here, understand these are earthly things. We always talk about the mysteries of God. This is not a mystery. Jesus says, if I tell you, if we tell you earthly things, and you can't understand those, He says that later in the text. We'll talk about that next week. Lord willing. If I tell you these earthly things, you can't get that. How will I ever tell you heavenly things? Mysterious things. Things you can't understand. This process takes place, Jesus says, on the earth. And what are his examples? Birth. And what is his example? Wind blowing. What is his example? Breath. That's his example. So the creative power of God is always accompanied by the breath of God from Genesis all the way through. The creative breath of God cannot be controlled by anyone. It is the grace of God. Salvation is by the sovereign plan of God. Look at Genesis, uh, John 3, 8 in your text. The wind blows where it wishes. The Spirit moves where it wishes, Jesus is saying. The breath of God moves where it wishes. And you hear it sound, just like Ezekiel heard it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Just like Ezekiel didn't know where this sound came from. It's just a sound. It came up on him. Neither do we know when it will come and when it will not come. We can't control it. It's not something we can manipulate. It's not something we can force, prod, pull, sell. This is the sovereign move of a sovereign God and He has a sovereign plan. I want to walk through that with you. He has a sovereign plan. Look on the screen, Ephesians 1, 3-10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as, I put it in italics, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. He chose us before we were born, before we were created, before we thought of. We were in the mind of God and He chose us that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the what purpose of His will, the divine plan of God's will. That's how salvation occurs to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, His plan, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven. And on earth. Salvation is by the plan of God. And it is done by the sovereign will of God. Salvation is the work of Christ. 
It is the gracious work of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 21 through 22. Again, I have it on the the Scripture on the screen for you. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body the flesh by death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Whose work is it? It's the plan of God the Father. It's the work of Jesus Christ. It is the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. It's the vouchsafe of the Holy Spirit. Salvation comes to us by the plan of God, the work of Christ, and we are sealed by the Spirit, guaranteed to Him. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believe in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus can say in John 10, The Father has given me the sheep, I have saved the sheep, and I will not lose any. Why? Because I've entrusted them to the Holy Spirit. God entrusted them to me, I entrusted them to the Holy Spirit for this time on the earth, and they will be presented back to the Father as a glorious bride, and then to me as my glorious bride in heaven. It is the work, our salvation is just like the creation was the work of the triune God. Our salvation is the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The creative work of God is completed in us at our justification. So Jesus is talking about our, glory, our salvation, our regeneration. The seed being fertilized is what He's talking about. And it will not be completed until glorification. You won't be fully like Him until you are with Him. Now here, I, I want to sum up this series, sim mini-series, if that's what you want to call it, from Jesus' series on regeneration with this understanding. That if you... So many people come into a message and they, they in their mind they say, just give me something I can go home with and live by. Something simple. That's spiritual death. If all you come to preaching for is the practicals, it is death. It is not life. And I'll tell you why. Because the only thing that will keep us holy is understanding that in us is the Spirit of a holy God. You'll never purify yourself by a book of rules or practicals, as we call them. Rubber meets the road sermons. We all have heard those terminologies. That's not what purifies the church. What purifies the church is the understanding that the Holy Spirit of a holy God the Father and a Holy Son, Jesus Christ, lives in us. And when we focus on that, when we focus on doctrine like our justification, when we focus on our regeneration, when we focus on salvation, when we focus on these things that seem to be so disconnected from my business world, they're the only things that will root us to life because they are the source of life. And so you never find the Scripture very much talking about practical things until they have told you doctrinal things. And so we're in the doctrinal section. And it applies into our life. And 1 John 3, 1 through 9 tells us that. Again, I've placed it for you so that you don't have to flip to it. On the screen, read it along with me. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. Underline that in your Bible. Children of God. And so we are. John is hinting to the fact that we are already 
in Christ glorified. We are already, as Paul said, seated with Him in the heavenly places. We're already there. We are His children. The reason why the world does not know you or us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, face to face, looking into a mirror. And it says of us, the believer in glory, that we will look at Christ and He will look at Himself when He looks at us. And John says, we are that person. Present tense. We are that person. We are. Renown. And He continues. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies Himself. You see it? The motive motivator for purity is not practical living. It's not to-dos. It's understanding who Christ is and that He lives in me and that because of that I will be pure and I will live pure. And he goes on to say some very convicting things that I hope you are convicted by and you think through. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on practicing sin or sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever what? Practices righteousness is righteous as He is righteous. The emphasis is... You will practice righteous when you are righteous. When will I be righteous? When I am the children of God. How will I be the children of God? Through the saving salvation of a creative God who puts His Spirit over you, energetically brings you to life and breathes into your nostrils. And that's how you will come to life. And that's how you will be righteous. You won't be righteous through legal laws and the recounting of some practical theology only. No one who bides in him keeps on sinning. Those are fearful words for me. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Look at this. I put it in italics. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed, underline it. Seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God, regenerated, born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Paul writes it for us very straightforward in Romans 8. 27 through 30. And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. There it is, the plan. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Underline brothers. 
Just like you did in 1 John. You see it? We are the children of God. He is the Son of God. We are His brother. Why? Because we have the seed in us. Because we have His seed. I'm going to make a very... What made the light bulbs go off for me on regeneration this past month. I've been thinking about whether I want to say it or not. And I'm, I'm going to say it at the end of this message. And just think about that. We're His brothers. Those whom He predestined, He called. And those He called, He justified. Those He justified, He glorified. It'll be finished in glory. It'll be finished in our glorification. All of those are past tense. Every one of them are past tense. Every one of them are predicated on the one that precedes them. Not the... In other words, you, you have foreknowledge first. And from that foreknowledge, He moves that knowing, that foreknowing, that intimate relationship He predestines. Those He predestines, He gives the inward call. Those whom He calls, He justifies. Those whom He justifies, He glorifies. And what's the purpose? So that we might be in the image of His Son. It won't be finished. Our regeneration will not finish until we look like Him. And one day we will look like Him. When we're in glory, He will look at us and be like He is looking in a mirror. He will only see Himself. It's hard for us to fathom. It's not taught much in our churches because we're too busy trying to guilt people down the aisle instead of saying, if you believe in Christ, you are saved. If you're saved, this is how you're saved, through the Spirit of God hovering over you, bringing you to life, breathing breath into you, and now you have the seed. That seed is maturing. Paul says, one day this outward seed will fall to the ground. And what will happen? The new man in 1 Corinthians 15 will spring up. The new man will spring up. And what will he look like? Jesus Christ. He'll look like a mirror image of Christ. Because that's who we are in Christ. The incarnation is the best way to understand the salvation of any man. 1 John 3, 9 has to be balanced and understood through the eyes and the lenses of John 1, 14. The same writer wrote it. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Right? The Word became flesh. It dwelt with us. Now, what does that mean? That means the Son left glory and put Himself in flesh, perfect flesh, and dwelt with us. So how does that relate to me? In this way. His perfect seed, His Spirit, was planted in me at regeneration. It is clothed in sinful flesh. Don't ever forget that. And it, the flesh serves the flesh and the Spirit wars against the flesh. We understand that. But never miss this. One day this flesh will drop dead or be changed in the twinkling of an eye, the Bible says, and we will be just like Him. Why? Because just as He came in a body and lived among us for 33 years, He has been placed in us through His Spirit in all of us. He has been placed in all of us. Christ lives in you by His Spirit. And He's a filter through the mind for a moment. So what is our excuse for sinning? That's what Paul would ask. Why are you still sinning then? What's the problem? 
you've been set free from it. Why do you keep entangling yourselves in these affairs of men, Paul might say. Let those things go and run the race that is set before you. How will I ever be pure? By getting the one, two, three list? No. By focusing on Him who is pure and who is making me pure. Salvation is so much bigger than we've boiled it down to in our Christian lives here in this culture. It's not about making you better for tomorrow. It's about making you pure for eternity. Christianity is not about you living a good life here. Christianity is about you living eternal life here that will be extended into all of eternity. Salvation is not about you having a good family or money or blessings. That's not what it's about. Salvation is about the riches of knowing Christ who is to be valued above all else. And so we count all these things as worthless, thrown onto a heap as garbage, Paul would say. Not just our previous life, but the life we live right now is not worthy to be considered to know Christ. Salvation is not about you being morally good. It's really not. Salvation is about you being like Christ, in the image of Christ, as a reflection of Christ. And that's why Nicodemus said, it's impossible. That's why Nicodemus couldn't understand it. Because he said, how am I supposed to be something that I'm not? And what Jesus is talking about in John 3 is not being something you're not. He's talking about being made into something that you're not. So that you now are this new living creature made in the image of Christ. So you're leaving this message one of two ways. You're either leaving convinced that Christ is the seed in me and he is being, I am being transformed even now into his image and when glory comes, I will look just like him. Or you're leaving perplexed like Nicodemus. You're saying, what in the world is he telling me i got to act like Jesus for? I'm not Jesus. I can't do it. That is hopeless. Believe me, I've tried. If you're leaving like that second guy, your hope is in Christ. You can never be good enough. You can never earn it. And you can never play the charade well enough or long enough to fool God. Dead bones are dead bones. Living, breathing, created beings don't look like dead bones because the seed of God sets them apart, sanctifies them, and will glorify them. What will I do if I'm a dead bone? Cry out to Him. As Bonner said in his hymn, he says, there's water if you're thirsty, drink. And I say, there's water, drink. He says, I'm the bread of life. If you're hungry, eat. And I say, there is bread in him, eat. Belief is the response of a living, breathing, spiritual creation. You don't have to whip it up. You don't have to make it happen. It will happen. I pray that your eyes are opened and that you leave understanding earthly things 
not that you leave the conversation like Nicodemus, still confused. I pray that you understand that your salvation is of the plan of God, the work of Christ, the guarantee of the Holy Spirit if you're saved. So what will you boast in? Nothing. Save the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you're lost, how will I be saved? By God, not by me. I cannot do it. Father, we come to the end of a time of very difficult truth and I confess that these things are very, very hard. They're hard because we've built up a resistance to anything that intervenes or invades our private freedom. They're difficult to us because we live in a culture of works. These things are so hard for us to understand because we want to look at them through fleshly, worldly eyes. And so we leave. Unfortunately, many times we leave the feasting, banquet table of our God hungry, thirsty, dead. So Lord, I pray that you will do only what you can do. I pray that there are those here who hear the breath, who hear the wind. They don't know what it is or where it comes from. They can't explain the ins and outs. They just know this. They're dead and they're thinking in their own minds, oh, I'm hopeless, and they hear it. I pray when they hear it that they will rejoice at the hearing of that wind and they will believe. I trust you that they will. I pray that after believing that they will make that public and they will be saved, Lord, and they will let their salvation be known to man. For those who are saved, I pray we would stop our boasting as if we have done anything. Everything we have comes from you. Our salvation is not ours. It is yours and is a gift to us. Thank you for gifting us with salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ, by your grace, through your faith, by your word, for your glory. It's all about you. Help us to see that. It's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Today we have a, an offering.